to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 29. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, that will be page 945. Give you just a moment to turn there. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be a sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The reading of God's word. Let us uh, go to God and ask for his blessing upon us. Lord, we thank you that you are king and Lord over your church and that you nourish and cherish your church. And so, Lord, we pray with Paul as we're commanded that the word of Christ would richly dwell within us. We ask that even now uh, that you would make the word that we've read thus far in worship and the, the good, wonderful doctrine that we have sung and confessed to make all of your word dwell richly within us, Lord, that it would take over its, its aroma and its beauty, its strength, its comfort, uh, its, its holiness, Lord, that these things will take hold of our lives in greater and greater ways. We pray uh, for Rick Lenz in Alabama as he continues to help with the uh, devastation there. We pray you continually strengthen Rick and bless him with and your presence, Lord, and bless him with wisdom in the great difficulties he is facing. As as Carol Redfield goes from chemo to radiation, we pray, Lord, that you would bless her and uphold her and continue to draw her to yourself as as Clay continues uh, 
his treatments. We pray that you would bless these treatments and, Lord, that you would utterly remove the, the cancer from his body. We thank you for the amazingly good report uh, for our sister Robin Humphreys and that there is no further concern for this. And we, we praise you for that, Lord, that, that word. Um, we thank you for others in our church who have been healed and have remained healed for years from devastating disease. We praise your name, Lord, for your goodness and greatness. Lord, <clears throat> we pray that you would uh, give us concentration, give us wisdom, give us the ability not to forget what we've heard, as James says, uh, like a man who looks in the mirror and he goes away and he forgets what he looks like, for us to forget your word and not apply it to our lives. But Lord, may we live it out uh, in the way we think and speak and do. Uh, may it infiltrate everything. For, for Jesus' sake, amen. <clears throat> I think one of the uh, problems with a passage like this uh, is we begin to ask questions like, am I a vessel of wrath? Right? I mean, you, I've, I've hardly ever seen anybody that reads this and just kind of, if you really, really read it seriously and see the words that just shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, okay. Rather, it's like, what? Uh, one brother was telling me this morning, the first time he ever heard this, he said, I just went ashen, you know, <laughs> thinking about the implications that God has created vessels of destruction and vessels of mercy. And when we hear that God chooses some and not others, we ask the question, am I elect? I spent two or three hours one morning as a youth director in First Presbyterian Church in Gadsden, Alabama, right out of college, pretty new to the Reformed faith, I was under my desk almost in tears, well, definitely in tears, asking, am I of the elect? Am I of the elect? I was just torn to pieces over this question. So it's very important to me as we're uh, leaving this section and moving into these uh, quotes, and, and this everything we're going to say is going to relate to these quotes that are from Hosea and Isaiah uh, I think it's very important for us to, under, to, to not misuse this doctrine okay, against ourselves. <clears throat> and so I want to give you these uh, exhortations. Do not use God's election as an excuse to refuse God's good news. Okay? That's how in our wrong approach we would use it as an excuse. Well, maybe I'm not elect. Well, that's not the question of whether you're the elect or not. That's God's unrevealed will. And another way to put it is, don't use God's unrevealed will, that is who he has chosen, which we don't know, as an excuse to reveal to refuse God's revealed will. And his revealed will is this. He offers you his salvation in Christ Jesus. Every one of you passionately offers you his son, Jesus Christ urges you. We're told by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 that it's as though God were begging uh, or were speaking through us. We beg you to be reconciled to God. That's God's stance to you, that he offers himself passionately and, and sincerely and urgently that you come. It is a real invitation. It's a call, a summons, even a command. That's why Peter in his first letter uh, can talk about those who do not obey the gospel. 
Because he commands you to come. You must come. <clears throat> so that's what you and I are to deal with. His, his offer of Christ, which is really God's offer of himself. <clears throat> so we don't ask the question, am I elect, as a way of deciding whether or not we will come or whether or not we can come. Well, yes, you can come. You're invited. You know, it's it's not as it's not like God has this big dude in front of the door like they have to an exclusive invitation to a, a, a invitation only Super Bowl party. You know, the big dude standing there said, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! Where do you think you're going? You're not elect." Yeah, but I want to believe. Yeah, sorry, you don't get, you don't got no invitation. This is only for the elect. Out of the line, you know. Like God's picking you out, even though you want to believe in Jesus, or that like there's this body scan, you know, like an election scan. There's like the airport body scan, and you're in the scan, and she's saying, "Um, let's see. Um, sorry, I can see right there that you're not of the elect. Can't let you through." Yeah, but I want to believe in Jesus. Ma'am, I can't change the screen. I can see what you are and you're not going in. You know, that, what do we think? You know, that God's like forbidding people to come to him because I'm sorry I hadn't elected you. Where in the Bible does it ever say that? Now, it does say in John 6, no one can come to the Father, but uh, can come to me except the Father draws him. It even says later in John 6, nobody can come to the Father unless it's been granted him. But in the same chapter, he says, anybody who comes and is hungry, come and eat the bread. Come. And so putting those together, it's simply, I can come and I must have you draw me, Lord, so I can come. I'm helpless. I'm so lost. I can't even draw myself. I can't even bring myself and, and believe. But you will draw me. You will bring me. And so I trust you. So it's more like this. They're giving out free bread and cheese at the food co-op. And you say, well, who's it for? Who's it for? It's for anyone who shows up and asks for it. It's for anyone that's hungry. Well, well what do I bring? Nothing. You get it? It's absolutely free. Uh, bring an empty stomach and do this. You think you can do that? That's all you have to do. And that's God's invitation. Come to me. Bring an empty stomach. Be starved. Be broken. Be helpless. Be lost. Hold out your hands. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. That's the message that we have to obey. That we, are, we have the privilege of obeying. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come all that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John seven thirty seven. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Or Isaiah fifty five. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. That's what we have to do with. And I want to remind you of the emphasis uh, in this passage thus far. And some of you have talked about this, that the, the, this has been in the past a forbidding passage just about God's sovereignty, but... The deeper we get into it, we see it's about his sovereign mercy. 
and how He shows mercy wherever He wants to. And, and, and nothing stands in the way of that mercy. We've seen how God's name that He revealed to uh, Moses at the burning bush, when Moses says, well, who am I going to tell him has sent me? And like, I just show up and say, this God has sent me. He says, tell him I am that I am has sent you. And basically, that means tell them that I am whatever I want to be for you. I can do whatever I want to do for you. And nothing, nobody can stop me. That's the kind of meaning there, you see. I'm anything and everything I need to be for you. I can do anything and everything for you. That would communicate to them, oh, well, maybe we're going to be delivered out of Pharaoh's hand. I mean, who in the world can deliver us? I am that I am. And here then, as he quotes it in verse uh, 15, and this must have been a precious truth for Paul and very important for him to quote this later encounter that Moses had. And, and people, uh, you know, commentators and scholars would say, this is really an exposition of that first statement. So I am that I am here now when, in a sense, uh, Moses is saying, now, what was that name again? I, like Colombo, now you were telling me something and I don't remember what it was. You know, like, what's that name? And as he says, uh, I will show my name, I will uh, pass, make my name pass before you. And it is this, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, compassion on whom I have compassion. And it won't be because of a person's goodness or evil. Nothing will stand in the way of my compassion. Their lack of goodness has nothing to do with it. No matter how evil a person is, I'll show my mercy to whomever and whenever I choose. And later, when he gives the full, when he really does pass before Moses. See, that statement that uh, Paul is quoting is God saying, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. And then he, quote, he says this, I will show mercy. Later, the actual historical incident occurs when he does pass before Moses and he declares his name. And this is what he says. Now, get the drift of this. And I'm saying this so that when you think about vessels of mercy and vessels of destruction and you think, well, God has elected some and not others, I want you to keep thinking, this is an amazing, merciful God. That's that's his name. (laughs) My name is I love to show mercy and I show it sovereignly. You don't stay away from a God like that. You come to a God like that. You come expectantly to a God like that. And so later when he gives the full uncovering of his name, listen to all that he says. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and forgiving transgression, forgiving sin. And then who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. And as several have pointed out, you've got nine terms of mercy as though he says, I'm the God of mercy, but I also judge. I'm the God of mercy. If you refuse my mercy, you will have nothing to do with my mercy. There is judgment. And you get the feel of that because usually, almost only one case that I've found is not this way. Here's how the... The writers, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, quote this passage. Okay, 
like Psalm 86. You, Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's it. Or Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I'll only give one more because it's kind of comical, really. Jonah, you know, ran from his assignment. And later we find out that the reason he ran from his assignment, that God, he just knew God was going to do what God did, and that was show mercy. He did it to these Ninevites. And, and Jonah says, I knew, it's almost as if, I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It's almost as if, I knew that. That's why I ran. I didn't want to see that happen to these people. But he knew it. And, but notice the emphasis of these passages. It's as, almost as though they've forgotten that judgment part. Well, the judgment part's there. But it just shows the emphasis is mercy, mercy, mercy. Like Jesus himself said, God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. That should encourage you. Does, does God in the first place come to you and say, I sent my son so you'd be condemned, so don't, don't come to him. Don't believe in him. Don't trust in him. Almost to say, well, you know that ultimately Jesus is going to condemn the world. That is, ultimately, he will come to judge the earth. We confess that. But you see, the point Jesus is making, that's not why he came, you know, to, to set up judgment. It's to set up salvation, to set up mercy. He came so that people could be saved. Will he judge the earth in the end? Yes, but he came to save. He comes to save you. He invites you to come to him. And that's why this is kind of the final icing on the cake about this idea of mercy. Not only, as we've seen, do you have this statement in Micah 7, which talks about his compassion, treading our iniquities underfoot, casting our sins into the depths of the ocean. Why? Because he delights in steadfast love. He delights in it. But then, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Be that the wicked turn from his way and live, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And it really rattles my brain to think that God has planned that he will save some and not others. But it, right alongside of that, you have to say, this is a part of God where he takes the greatest delight in showing steadfast love and he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That should encourage you. Never allow Satan to whisper into your ear, God really doesn't want to save you. You're not savable. The invitation is not to you. He delights to save anyone. He never delights in the death of anyone. Also, don't use his sovereignty and your helplessness, and I'll be briefer here, as an excuse not to come to him. Okay? As an excuse not to come to him. Sometimes we think, well, I can't even believe, I can't even repent. 
He's the only one who can save. And we almost use that as an excuse to stay away from him. But we don't do that in any other area. Like, if, if your transmission goes out, you're going to go to a Robert Johnson to get it fixed. Right? If, if, you're sur- if you need surgery and you can't do it yourself, probably, then you go to John Burberry to, to have it done. It's just natural, right? Does our helplessness, does that become an excuse to stay away from God? I can't save myself, so I'm not going to come to him. No. I can't fix my transmission, so I'm not going to go to Robert. I, I, can't, I can't do the surgery, so I'm not going to go to John. I have this cavity and I can't fix it, so I'm not going to go to the dentist. I have this sin and it's so grievous and I'm so helpless and I'm so weak, so I'm not going to come to God. So don't use your helplessness. It's strange how we explore ways to stay away from God's mercy. We do. We explore ways. We find ways to stay away from God's mercy. You, you, could, you may say, I don't know if I can believe. I don't know if I can re- repent. And God says, let me settle that question. There's no way you can without my grace. But he offers everything you need even to come to him. He gives faith. He gives repentance. He gives you a new heart. I love Joseph Hart's words in his hymn. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. Whatever you say you can't do, then come to him and ask, Lord, I need you to do this for me. I'm just helpless. I, I've told you this before, but I, I used to work a, a, a drilling firm one summer. And one time I had to go, uh, certain holes are, are smaller and the drill could go all the way down to bedrock. Okay, And your shoulders are touching the sides of it. It's not the most comfortable thing in the world. But then I have to go all the way down there and, and drill first a four-foot hole, then a six-foot hole, then, a, then I put a ten-foot bit in there and drill ten-foot down so that I know that I'm at bedrock. Okay? You're in this drill and you're, and you're just looking up and it just looks like a little dime up there, you know. And you just know, if they didn't come get me, I ain't getting out of this hole, you know. There's no way. But that's always been an image for me for the helplessness as we come to Christ and just say, Lord, I'm absolutely at the bottom. I can't do anything for myself. You have to come all the way down to where I am in my helplessness and bring me to yourself. That's the joy of salvation. It's the joy of not having to scale any height, not having to be a certain righteousness to be accepted, not having to meet some... Yes, He changes us and we live differently when He takes hold of our lives, but it's all of grace. It's all of grace. And so I want to urge you to enjoy His sovereignty and salvation. Don't let it be something that kind of pushes you away. Oh, he's sovereign in salvation. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about that election thing. I don't want to think about his sovereignty. As though the most comforting thing is, I just want to think about how I believe. That's all I want to think about. I believe. And not think about the sovereignty of God. And we do this in in some subtle ways, for instance. We, We need to enjoy what he declares sovereignly about us. And just say, that's who I am. I don't define myself. He defines me. He calls me by a new name. 
For instance, here's one I've heard a lot. And it's one I've said before. I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. I want to explore that a little bit. It's such a piddling thing that God sent His Son to suffer the eternal wrath of God on your behalf and declares that you're forgiven of all your sins, made righteous and acceptable in His sight. But no, I can't forgive myself. I, the determining force of the universe, that is infinitely more important than what's His name forgiving me. I can't forgive me. See how that sounds. What? What does that matter? God declares you forgiven. Can you imagine Romans 8.33 in this context? You're standing before God. You are in that day. And God thunders out, Who shall bring any charge against this one? And of all people, there you are like Tom Hanks raising his hand in the office meeting in the movie Big. Um, I would like to uh, stand against your justification of me. And frankly, I think this will carry the day. I can't forgive myself. What? He declares you justified. He declares it. The sovereign God over all. Let us enjoy that declaration. This can be a a way, really, for us to avoid the, the implications of God's forgiveness. It can be a way to hold on to our idols of self-pity and fear and anxiety and guilt. Guilt and fear can be your idols separating you from the soul-freeing liberty of God's forgiveness. Which brings about not a focus on what I can't do, but an outward focus of what benefits and goodness I can pour into others' lives. But a refusal to enjoy and rest in the forgiveness of Christ allows me to keep myself at the center of my universe and not a gracious God. No, God, I can't let you come in here with free forgiveness and turn everything upside down in my life. I've placed all my hurts and wrongs done to me and wrongs I've done to others on neatly arranged shelves in my heart so I can call on them at any time to keep the focus of my life right where I'm used to keeping it on me. I can't have you barging in here and throwing all that stuff in the tomb of Christ and freeing me up to live a new life and start putting your new artwork on the shelves. I gotta have my stuff. I gotta keep living for myself. His sovereign mercy displaces self. It's the only thing that will. His sovereign mercy displaces self. And that's why Paul says, in the very context that the love of Christ governs me, that he died, that I'd no longer live for myself, but for him. That was his death. His death displayed the love of God in such a way, it broke the back of myself, my living for myself. And now it is the love of Christ. So we can't reserve the right to define who we are, to name ourselves, to classify ourselves, to create our own identity and our own story. Uh, We should react to this potter and clay language as awesome as it is to say, Oh Lord, take me in your mighty hands and save me. How glorious, how wonderfully uh, for us to trust. And this emphasis on sovereign mercy continues to mark these passages that Paul quotes in Hosea. After talking about the vessels in verses 22 and 23, he then specifically says he's called us 
not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now, for the Jews, there was this idea, we're the vessels of mercy. We're his chosen people. The Gentiles are the vessels of destruction, poor devils. But we are the vessels of mercy. But here Paul just shatters it in two ways. He says, not only are there some from the Jews, which is already indicated, wait, 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 wait. You're saying not all the Jews? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And then the second part, and not only from the Jews, but from the Gentiles. And both of those were like, wait, wait a minute. I thought we were vessels of mercy, all of us, and all of them were vessels of destruction. He says, no, some from here and some from here are vessels of mercy. Shocking language. And then he goes first to the Gentiles to talk about that in verses 25 and 26. And in its original context in Hosea, he's talking about the northern tribes of Israel that had so worshipped idols that God had cast them out of the land. And it's as though they were not his people anymore. They had alienated themselves from God. And so in that context of their alienation and their refusal of God, God has these precious words. Even you who are not my people anymore because of your sin, I will call you my people. I will show mercy to you even though you have done these these things. Uh, Those who are not beloved, I will call beloved. Those who are not my sons, you will be called sons of the living God. And so this has reference, though, now to the Gentiles. And get what he's doing. He's saying, you Jews, you were in the same condition of the Gentiles at that point. You were outside. You were cut off. You had alienated yourselves. It's almost as though he's saying, you were like Adam having abandoned God. And God had mercy on you who were not his people at that point, And he made you his people. He said, it's the same as the Gentiles. The Gentiles receive the same exact grace that you receive, Jews. It's for everybody. You were just like them. They are like you. And so this mercy goes out to all in the same way. Their exile was a reminder of the beginning grace with Abraham. Abraham, we're told, was no more than a man who lived with with idol worshipers. He wasn't chosen because he was the greatest guy on earth. He was just picked because of mercy. And when he said to them, you who are not my people are my people, it's almost as though he's going right back to Abraham and says, he was not mine, but he is now. He was an idol worshiper and his family was an idol worshiper, but I took hold of him and he's mine. And he's saying that's exactly what is happening to the Gentiles now. You and I get to have a new name And he says three different names, doesn't he? My people, beloved, sons of the living God. And I love that little phrase where he says, in the very place where it was said, okay? Right where you are, right where you bore the shame of your degradation and alienation from God, right there where you failed amidst everyone so miserably and rejected God so completely and despised his fatherly care so consistently, you, right there, You will be called my people. 
And so God redefines you and repositions you and resituates you as His people. Realigns you and reshapes you. This name is who you are now. With all the resources and privileges and dignity, with all the responsibilities and joys and comforts and strength and hope that comes with this new name. And so the place and circumstances, the the place and circumstances and relationships in which you did not know God are now the place and circumstances and relationships in which you do know God. Everything is different because of that. Those who are not my people, I say now, they're my people. I say, they're beloved. I say, they're the sons of the living God. Hear it. Receive your name. Live out your name. Be your name. That's who you are in Christ Jesus. Then these sobering words, as he moves to Isaiah and talks about Israel. You know, here are these two ideas. Wait a minute, you're taking pure Gentiles that don't become Jews and you're calling them your people? And they're not even circumcised? And they're not going to worship in the temple and you're calling them your people? It doesn't compute. Well, here's the other part that doesn't compute. Even though they're like the sand of the seashore, the people of Israel, it's a remnant that will be saved. A remnant. God's purpose hasn't fallen but he was going to save a portion of Israel, not the whole of physical Israel. And that's what he's dealing with here. And so if he saved a remnant then, it's understandable that when Messiah comes, he's saving a remnant now. In other words, he's done this before. This is not unusual for God. And at this passage he's quoting in Isaiah Especially get the feel from verse 28, the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. This was a judgment upon Israel to say only a remnant will be saved because of your violent sin against me. Only a remnant will be saved. And so they are put in the same category as Ishmael and Esau and Pharaoh, those who have turned against God most of Israel, and he saves out of that a remnant. We've already seen in chapter 11 how he talked about this very thing. At the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But I want you to notice this last verse. It's really an amazing verse. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, seed, which comes from the earlier part of chapter 9, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So, only a remnant was saved, but that a remnant is saved is evidence of God's mercy. That a remnant is saved is an evidence of God's mercy. And here's one of the heights of Old Testament religion, I think. One of the mountain peaks in this statement. Because here in chapter 1, Isaiah is saying this, we would have been just like Sodom and Gomorrah. We're just like Sodom and Gomorrah. We deserve the same judgment as Sodom and Gomorrah. And we would have utterly perished like Sodom and Gomorrah. But God showed us mercy and saved a portion of us. That's the feel of this. 
It's severe and it's awesome that he saved a remnant. And yet it's full of the richest mercy because he could have left them like Sodom and Gomorrah because that's what they were like. And the implication is for you and me, you're just like Sodom and Gomorrah at heart. You and I. As Thomas Schreiner says, Israel was no better than Sodom and Gomorrah and they deserve the same fate as they. And you and I must say, uh, uh, us too. Us too. Put us down there too. If God had not shown mercy on every one of us, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Where people that came to town got violently raped, where children were sacrificed by the fire. And you think again of that passage we read last week. Why was I in, in the hymn? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and rather starve than come. And all of this, as he talks about those who are not my people will be my people. I want to end on this note that hearing that God has vessels of mercy should not keep us from evangelism. It should drive us to evangelism. That's another wrong response to election is, well, God's chosen some and they're vessels. Like for Paul, he could be saying, well, they're vessels of mercy and they're vessels of destruction. I can't change anything, so what's the use? That's not how I use this doctrine, as we've seen this before. Let me just refer you to this passage, and you can look at it on your own later. 2 Timothy 2.10, listen to what Paul says. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Why do I... Why am I shipwrecked, beaten, lashed, left for dead again and again and again? Why do I suffer all of these things? Here's Paul at the end of his life, writing from prison. Why have I endured all of this? God has vessels of mercy out there. And I will go find them so that they can obtain this salvation. That was the driving force. It didn't keep him from evangelism. It drove him to evangelism. And you'll see in the very next chapter, in chapter 10, he says, how will they hear unless somebody is sent? They've got to hear. Somebody has to preach. Therefore, somebody has to be sent. I want to leave you with this quote from David Platt's book, Radical Together. When he first got to this church, Brook Hills, some of you know about this church in Birmingham, about an hour from my hometown. And this is very typical of leadership stuff in, uh, in a church. When I came to Brook Hills, I was encouraged to d- identify our target audience. Now, you want to do that because in church growth, if you identify your target audience, you're not going to waste your time on those that are not your target. You just focus on that age group or that slice of class of people. And the statistics show that you can really grow a faster church if you'll target your audience. And here is the question, who is Brook Hills Bob? Okay, 
I was asked. In other words, what was the profile of the person we were most trying to reach? The profile seemed obvious. Business people fill our community. Their average age is in their 40s, and they have good educations and well-paying jobs that enable them to support families with multiple children in an upper-middle-class community. This sort of person, some would say, is who we need to focus on as a church. I disagree. It's not that I think Brook Hills Bob is unimportant. He's extremely important. And we want men and women like that and their families in Birmingham to come to Christ. But we decided our goal was not to reach Brook Hills Bob. Instead, our target was going to be Brook Hills Baruti. Let me explain. Baruti doesn't live in our community. Instead, he lives thousands of miles away in North Africa. He is illiterate and poorly paid. He attempts to survive on meager daily rations of food and water from outside sources. He was born into a spiritually and physically impoverished people group where almost no one knows Jesus or has even heard of him. And Baruti's people like it that way. When a Roman woman in Baruti's people group heard about Christ and trusted in him for salvation, she was immediately killed by her husband and her father. Baruti fervently worships a false god and is blinded to the reality of his sin and resistant to the message of Savior. That's who we're setting to reach at Brook Hills. I love that phrase, Brook Hills Baruti. (laughs) You see, if you believe that God has vessels of mercy scattered around this world, then you want to start telling people. I don't mean unwisely. I don't mean start knocking on doors. You know, friendship, using relationship, using right means. But we need to start having confidence in what God is going to do to draw his people to himself because he has mercy on whomever he wants. Let us pray. Lord, we ask you to open up our hearts uh, to receive your precious word, these precious promises to us as your people the promises that you will be gathering a people from around this world and they will all be before your throne and that we can play a part in that of seeing God gather in the vessels of mercy. Oh Lord, may if there's anyone here that does not presently trust in the grace of Jesus Christ and trust in the mercy of God, may you draw him or her even now, even today. May they trust in Christ who has borne our sins on the cross, who's died in our place to bear our punishment, and who offers himself to take away our sins so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be restored to God, so that in his mercy he can uh, have a relationship with us that lasts through eternity, and that we can begin to take on the very character of God and bring to this world life and light and grace and the grace of Jesus Christ. Bless, O Lord, for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus.
come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?